0: Hey, Curiosity intern Linnea Dominic here. Well, we're entering another week of Curious scavenger hunt, and hopefully you've been unlocking lots of clues and seeing a new side of the city. You've probably noticed that Chicago's community areas have a deep history, and many have changed a lot over the years. So for the duration of the scavenger hunt, we're going to rerun some of our favorite neighborhood-specific episodes. If you listened to last week's episode about foods that started in Chicago, You heard Monica mention a restaurant in Lakeview that serves something called the Akatagawa. It's an omelet-like dish with hamburger patty, green pepper, onion, and bean sprouts. And it developed in Lakeview when it was home to a working-class Japanese neighborhood. But when was that? And what happened to that community? Reporter Catherine
1: Nagasawa has more. When Irene Brown was a kid in the 90s, her family used to take trips to Chicago's Japantown. At least, that's what her mom used to call it. It was a cluster of Japanese restaurants and businesses on the north side in the Lakeview neighborhood near Belmont and Clark Streets. Now, Irene's family isn't Japanese, but her family liked to drive in from the suburbs to shop for ingredients for the Japanese recipes they liked to try out. If you wanted to buy rice noodles, you couldn't just go into any store and, or order it on Amazon. <laughs> you had to actually go to the Japanese neighborhood. The shops and restaurants Irene remembers were actually the remnants of a small but thriving Japanese-American neighborhood. At its peak in the 70s, there were around 150 Japanese-American-owned establishments in the area. And right in the middle was the Nisei Lounge Bar near Clark and Sheffield. It was named after the Nisei, or second-generation Japanese-Americans who lived in the neighborhood. My dad would be sitting there watching the Cubs games, and uh, um, it'd be all Japanese-Americans, Niseis here at the time. That's Paul Yamauchi who as a kid would work in his dad's restaurant, The Hamburger King. It was next door to the Nisei Lounge. My pay was a bowl of chili and fries, and there was a door here that connected the Nisei Lounge. The Nisei Lounge is still there, but Irene says nearly all of the other Japanese shops and restaurants she remembers are gone. Taguri Mercantile, where she went shop for pottery and chopsticks, is now an improv comedy theater. Clark Street is now full of sports bars and chain stores. It's made her wonder. Chicago has so many ethnic enclaves, it has Greektown, it has Chinatown. What happened to that Japanese community and where did they go? The reason the Lakeview neighborhood disappeared is complicated. And part of it has to do with how Japanese Americans got to Chicago in the first place. They didn't come by choice. The U.S. government forcibly relocated 20,000 Japanese Americans to Chicago during World War II. And that group was pressured to shed their ethnic identity, their language, and their culture in order to survive. That story doesn't start in Chicago. It starts on the West Coast in the 1940s.
2: December 7th, 1941. No American will ever forget this Sunday morning in Hawaii. High overhead, Jap Raiders are on the loose. Without warning, they circle Pearl Harbor in the city of Honolulu, a surprise attack
1: It was the beginning of World War II. Approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans were living in what were called Japan towns on the West Coast. These were essentially Japanese neighborhoods, similar to other immigrant neighborhoods around the country. But with the threat of an invasion from Japan, the U.S. government was worried about the loyalty of the highly concentrated West Coast Japanese Americans. So they incarcerated them in what were later called internment camps around the country.
2: We are protecting ourselves without violating the principles of
0: Christian decency.
1: But keeping 120,000 people locked up was expensive, and the country needed workers. So after a couple years, the government changed its focus to reintroducing Japanese Americans back into society. Researcher Laura Fujikawa says the government didn't want Japanese Americans to return to the Japan towns they left on the West Coast. They wanted them to spread out and assimilate. The government told them that part of the reason you ended up in these
0: camps was was because you hung out with your own kind.
1: They were basically saying, you're too Japanese. So when the government allowed Japanese Americans to leave the camps, they set specific conditions. One, they closed the West Coast to Japanese for the duration of the war. And two, they forced them to answer a series of questions about loyalty before they were allowed out. So one of the questions said, you have to promise that you're not going to hang out with other
0: Japanese Americans.
1: They also told them to avoid speaking Japanese and to develop, quote, American customs.
0: So the government says, we'll let you go as long as you stop acting what we think of as Japanese and as long as you integrate
1: into the society. So how do we get from the camps to Lakeview? Well, in 1943, the government chose Chicago as the first city to pilot their vision for Japanese assimilation. They believed Chicago would be more tolerant to Japanese Americans. Unlike the West Coast, Chicago didn't have the same pre-war racial prejudice towards the Japanese, since there were so few of them living in the city at the time. And when they first arrived, Japanese Americans found it was easy to find jobs in Chicago's light industries, like garment manufacturing, bookbinding, and candy factories.
2: So you get a job at McClure's, you can get a job at Curtis Candy, you can get a job uh,
1: at Baby Ruth. All these places wanted Nisei because they're good workers. That's Ross He was born in a camp and just a couple years old when his family arrived in Chicago, along with a wave of 20,000 other Japanese Americans. Hirano says his family, along with many others, received housing assistance from the government and other local agencies. To encourage assimilation, the government made sure to settle people in different neighborhoods on the south and near north sides.
2: So there wasn't any clustering. It, It was sort of a, you understood what you had to do. You had to basically be unseen.
1: But once the government stopped paying attention, Japanese Americans did begin to cluster together, moving out of the south and near north sides. By the 1960s, the biggest cluster was in Lakeview between Belmont and Addison streets. Lakeview was thought of as safe and affordable. And it was close to white middle-class neighborhoods, which was in line with the government's directive to assimilate into the dominant American culture. To understand what it was like to grow up in Lakeview and why the neighborhood disappeared, I met a group of people who grew up in the area. We went to the same place you heard about earlier, the Nisei Lounge Bar, one of the last establishments still left from that era. They're from a generation that was shaped by the government's efforts to force assimilation. You can see traces of it in the first names their parents gave them. Ken Funemura, Elaine Kaneshiro, Mike Higa, and Tracy and Linda Oishi. But as kids, they weren't really aware of everything their parents had gone through to get to Chicago and Lakeview. They just knew it was a nice place to grow up.
2: We'd get out of school at 2.30 there, and basically what we would end up doing, we'd go right over to Wrigley Field because they would open up 7th uh, inning there. All the churches used to host
0: dances not too far from here at Viking Hall. <laughs> and so in during my high school years, that was my social life.
2: Our parents would say, go out and play, so we would go out to Le Moyne School, where I went to grammar school at. They would flood the... Uh, the playground lot there, and we would go and out ice skate there. There's nothing particularly Japanese about
1: these memories. They could be anybody in Chicago. But looking back, the group said they now see that their very American childhoods came at a cost for their parents, who had been traumatized by the war and resettlement. Here's Linda Oishi and Mike
0: Higa. I mean, my dad was like, you know, you guys are 100% American, don't ever forget it. We were also striving to break away from the stigma of the war, subliminally.
2: My father-in-law actually went so far as to tell his children, you are not going to learn Japanese. And they wanted to
1: assimilate so badly that they actually went to that extreme. And, and they probably lost a
2: little bit of history doing that.
0: I mean, not that we were blaming ourselves or feeling, you know, responsible. It's like, we were totally identified as being the enemy. Other ethnic groups were not identified, like the German-Americans or the Italian-Americans. They were not identified as being the enemy. It was because of our faces. So you can't get away from that. You know, you can't run away from that.
1: But there was a way to try to get away from it, and that was to do what the government wanted the Japanese to do in the first place, achieve white middle-class markers of success. And I think that that was
0: also a part of what happened to this generation as far as we had to move on and get out of the stereotype? To go into professions um, that required higher education, doctors, lawyers, I mean, that was really
1: going to be revered. Nearly every Japanese-American family in Lakeview in the 70s could trace their roots back to World War II and the camps. And the pressure to assimilate that started in the camps meant the children of the detainees, the kids that grew up in Lakeview, They didn't stick around. Here's Tracy Oishi.
0: So as they took higher education, they left to follow careers and,
1: you know, and moved. When you look at that post-war generation that grew up in Lakeview, you find professionals dispersed throughout the city and suburbs, a group that a recent study found have the highest level of intermarriage to whites of any Asian ethnic group. I wanted to know, what was the cost of all of this? I asked everybody how their experiences might have been different had there been less pressure to assimilate, and if there was still a neighborhood to anger the community. Linda she feels like, in that case, she might have felt like she didn't have to make a choice between being Japanese or being American. Would we have to
0: decide? Are we American first or are we Japanese first? And what do we push? Do we push our culture, which is, you know, Japanese language, dancing, music? I mean, we have all these wonderful art things, pottery, kimono making, all this stuff that is just being lost through the third and fourth generations. I don't want that to die. I want it to be part of my kids and my
1: grandkids. But how do you do that? Without strong ties to Japanese culture or a neighborhood like the one that used to exist in Lakeview, it's harder to do that. But Elaine Kanashiro says it's possible. It just requires effort. As she's gotten older and reflected more about what her family lost during the war and in the camps, she says it's been more important for her to seek out other Japanese Americans, even if there's no neighborhood.
0: I am still part of a Japanese community here in Chicago. And in that setting, I am very comfortable. There is still, even though we don't see each other a lot, there's a commonality there. There's a connection there that um, is important to me. So, um,
1: I think there's a community, maybe it's not geographic. Sure enough, a couple weeks after I spoke with the group at the Nisei Lounge, I saw Elaine Konishiro at an event there. <laughs> Can I
0: get you a beer, a glass of wine or something? No,
1: actually, i It was a fundraiser for a local project that sends young Chicago Japanese <laughs> Americans on a pilgrimage to one of the incarceration camps in California a way of reconnecting to that history. (laughs) For a few hours, the lounge was filled with Japanese Americans across generations. Third generation Sanseis drinking old style beer with fourth generation Yonseis. They live all across Chicago and in the suburbs. But when it came time for this scattered community to choose a place to meet and think about history and heritage, they chose the Nisei Lounge, right at the center of the old neighborhood in Lakeview. Reporting for this story came from me, Katherine Nagasawa. Support for Curious City comes from the Conant Family Foundation.
2: Hey, it's Curious City editor Alexandra Solomon. It's August, and normally this time of year, my kids start to get that nervous, butterflies-in-your-stomach feeling of excitement as the beginning of school approaches. But this year, they say they don't have those same butterflies. That's because they'll be learning at home when school starts up in September. That means a total disruption of our normal family routine. And WBEZ has already started to hear from other families who are worried about how their kids will be affected. Now the team at Curious City wants to hear from you. What have you been hearing from the students in your life? Leave us a voicemail at 888-789-7752. That's 888-789-7752. And your story might get featured in an upcoming episode of the show.